Well, the account given of the events at Emmaus are late on Easter day. And these provide us with some of the first details that we see of the risen Jesus. But there are as many unanswered questions as there are answered questions in this passage. For instance, who are these two travellers who are on the road to Emmaus? And why did Jesus come to meet with them specifically in the way he did? There are some clues but there's more we don't know about them than we do. But I want you to indulge me this evening a little bit in a little bit of uh, perhaps intuitive thinking as to who these people might have been and what might have been in their hearts. It's not unreasonable to assume that Emmaus would have been their home. It's seven miles outside Jerusalem, and it seems quite likely that late on Easter day, they would have been traveling home. And it seems probable that it was their house to which they invited Jesus. Hospitality was a big thing and travellers were common. And so it was common to invite them into your home to share a meal and to stay over. We also know the name of one of these travellers, but not the other one. Now that may or may not be significant. It was important as the gospel writers put these accounts down that they identified the eyewitnesses to what had happened. These were remarkable resurrection events. And they are so earth-shattering that people were going to ask, who was it that witnessed these things? So Luke and the other gospel writers are keen to name names. These were actual people who saw and testified to these events. And so from Luke, we learn the name of one of these people. It's Cleopas. Now, Cleopas is a male name, and it's a Greek name, which is strange for somebody who probably lived in Emmaus, because they'd be more likely to have an Aramaic name. But who is the other person? They're not named. And the most likely cultural explanation is that the second person would have been a woman. In terms of the law and witness statements, it was the testimony of the man that would have carried the weight. So it wouldn't have been necessary to name the other person if it was a woman. And if Cleopas was walking home with a woman, then we would expect it to have been his wife. And now if we shuffle on to John's Gospel and we look at the crucifixion account, in John 19.25 we read that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There are four women at the foot of the cross. Jesus' mother, Mary, and her sister, Mary Magdalene, and this fourth lady, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, Clopas is an Aramaic name, and it's the same name as Cleopas, like Pierre and Peter, Jean and John, same name, different language. We don't know that we can actually fit these together as fact. I am somewhat speculating, and I don't want to rewrite theological history, but it could well have been this woman who stood at the foot of the cross. If that's the case, then it's no wonder that as they walk to Emmaus, their heads are bowed low. How utterly courageous and devoted those four women were to stand at the cross on that Good Friday. 
They were to stand there and to support Jesus in his trauma and his agony. Sometimes when you go around art galleries, you can be seduced by the great masters who sort of theatrically paint the scene of the cross. But it wasn't like that at all, which is perhaps why, uh, was it Mel Gibson in his film, The Passion of Christ, set out to depict something of the gruesome nature of what actually happened in Jesus's last hours. For those four women, it must have been absolutely traumatizing to have stood there on that Good Friday. Their whole world had been shattered. The screams, the images, the smell, the blood, the brutality of that day is the stuff of utter nightmares. To call it post-traumatic stress syndrome would seem inadequate for what they had been through. And is it to that same Mary, Mary the wife of Clopas, that Jesus quietly draws alongside on the road to Emmaus? Is it more that Jesus, is, it, is this more than Jesus just making some random appearance on the streets of some strangers? Is there a plan and a purpose when he draws alongside and starts to warm their hearts? Grief and trauma carve indelible marks on our soul. And Jesus knows that. And as we are convulsed with hurt and pain, Jesus feels that with us. There's a modern uh, practice in parenting of what I would call fledging your children, and that is sending them off in the world to stand on their own two feet. But that's not how Jesus is with us. His message to us isn't toughen up, stiff up a lip, face it like a man. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are burdened and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, come to me, that's what Jesus says. And the reality isn't that we need to go searching for him. He says, I'm here already. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm here already. And so does Jesus come to our two Emmaus travellers in that way? Is that what he's doing, drawing alongside those who are utterly grief-stricken? As he does so, there are three things that he does, and there are three T's that I want us to remember. The first is he teaches them. The second is he touches them. And the third is he leaves them to testify. Now notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't come to them on the road and reveal himself straight away. The first thing he does is teach them so that they understand. And part of our walk of grief is to understand Jesus in a new way. At home group this week, I was struck, struck by a fact that I'd never realized before. And it's this, most of the Old Testament prophecies were written in exile, in times of trauma. Those were the times when God's people found a new depth of understanding in their relationship with God. It's in the trauma that God teaches us. So firstly, he taught them as they walked along the way. 
And secondly, as Jesus broke bread, in some way he touches them because their eyes are opened and their hearts are set on fire. The Holy Spirit has touched them in revelation and with power. Jesus shows them in that very moment who he really is, and this changes them completely. It's an extraordinary moment right in the middle of supper. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and their eyes are open to see Jesus. He teaches them and then he touches them. And lastly, Jesus leaves them. Now, isn't that strange? At that very moment, he disappears. Don't you think they'd have had a bundle of questions they want to ask him? Don't you think it would have been something of a reunion that they just want to enjoy together that evening? Don't you think the presence of the risen Lord of that particular moment would have been something they'd want to savour together? But Jesus had done in that Emmaus house all that he needed to do. They now needed to go and testify to the things that they had seen and heard. So up they got, and off to Jerusalem they went. Jesus, teaching and touch, were not so that they would feel better. It was that they would be witnesses, to testify, to spread the word, to make him known. You see, that event wasn't Jesus coming to give them a birthday party, a present to enjoy. It was more like a rugby ball to pass on. God's desire for you and for me in those times of darkness and trauma is to feel his transforming touch and then to have a heart which burns within us that knowing in our head what he's done for us and feeling in our heart what he means to us, that we can then go and do what they did, and that is testify to what we've seen and what we know. That's what God calls us to do. As he touches us, he doesn't want to make us better. He wants to make us witnesses. And through healing and through reconciliation, we experience the touch of God in a wonderful way that should send us out, as they did, to testify to our great God. Let's pray together.